0: I'm Dave Garner. I'm the chair of the Greater Phoenix Chapter of the J. Ruben Clark Law Society. And today on our podcast, I'm uh, having the pleasure of interviewing Judge Brian Faruja, uh a uh, judge here on the Arizona Court of Appeals, and uh, uh, super excited to have an opportunity to, to visit with Judge Faruja. Uh The The genesis of this podcast idea was really uh, the fact that I attended Judge Faruja's, um investiture, uh, virtually, as it turned out, and listened to uh, his remarks, and they really stuck with me. It was, a, it's, a, he's got a very fascinating backstory, and uh, we thought that was something that would be uh, uh, beneficial and and of interest to our chapter members and others who subscribe to the the mission of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society. So, Judge Faria, again, thank you for setting aside some time to uh, visit with us today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to visit with you and. Always was grateful for the opportunity to, to revisit with uh, other members of the society. So. Awesome.
0: Well, I, I as I was looking through Judge Faruja's background, I realized that we have a lot of things in common, uh, one of which is that uh, we both uh, – he currently lives in Flagstaff, and I was born and raised in Flagstaff and uh, uh, lived there all of my growing up years, graduated from Coconino High School, uh but uh, I take it that you uh came to Flagstaff a little later in life. I I did. And uh Go Panthers. That's right, Go Panthers. Woohoo! Sorry to all of you Flagstaff Eagles fans out there, but uh
1: yeah, I, I grew up in the Los Angeles area. I came to Flagstaff um, about 16 years ago now. Um 17 actually, 17 years ago now. Uh but grew up in the LA area. Uh Born and raised uh, in San Gabriel Valley, uh, right about Pasadena.
0: Okay. Awesome. And and I take it you came there for work to practice in the county attorney's office? Uh, no, actually. I When I came to Flagstaff,
1: I was invited there uh, to join a firm uh, called Aspie Watkinson Diesel. That's right. And uh so I was in private practice uh for about eight and a half years before that. I actually got that job because of uh, a former alum from BYU law school, uh Purnell McGuire.
0: Oh, Purnell McGuire. Okay. Well, we have a Purnell sighting here. Yes, I know I know (laughs) Purnell. Um, he is a little bit older than I, but he was good friends with my oldest sister uh growing up. She's about uh she's six years older than I am, and and uh so she knew him quite well. And his younger brother, uh, James, who was also an attorney, was a really good friend, very close friend of my younger brother. Uh, so we definitely know the McGuire family well. They didn't have a child that was right my age, but uh, but good folks there. Which brings up another another uh, thing that we have in common is that we both went to BYU for undergrad degrees and then went back for law school. Yep. Um, so undergrad degree was in... Political science and philosophy. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And was it your always your plan to go to law school, or was that something that was uh, you know came during the course of, of that undergraduate career? You know,
1: it's kind of interesting. I um, I'm, I'm unusual in in the sense that uh, I I knew very early on what I wanted to do. Um, I. Uh, I have since I was a junior in high school wanted to be an appellate lawyer or appellate judge. And, uh, I came to that kind of through an interesting circumstance. I, um, and it, it's kind of, it involves a lot of, of the, the life paths that, that we follow. I, um, so I, I, I'm a member of the church now. I, I haven't always been. I okay. uh, I joined in high school, and uh, before uh, I had, was a member. I had sort of atypical kind of kid dreams, right? Just I I wanted to be all. I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be able to be rich and be able to
0: <laughs> not have to work hard. Um, and you yeah. realize that the pinnacle of being rich and not having to work hard was working in an appellate court, right?
1: No, that comes later.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right.
1: That's definitely not the case. Um, but at the same time I, I started, I was embarking on this sort of faith journey, this kind of discovery of self. And, um, so I, uh, I spent some time in my early adolescence kind of, questioning everything as adolescents do and because teenagers always know everything that was uh a painful experience because we you know know everything and um and i was absolutely certain that there was no such thing as god and that uh and that all churches were just there to fake people out of their money that was my belief system.
0: That was the Brian Ferruya teenage perspective. That was. And did, and did you grow up in a home where there was religion or faith was uh, was was part of the family background and culture?
1: No, it was actually very very absent. Okay. Uh, not hostile, but but absent. My my parents are kind of I, I call them armchair Christians. They're they're really laid back protestant in their upbringing but uh believe in god but uh really simple sort of we don't have to do anything god loves us god loves you and that's good enough if you don't hurt anybody and that's as much that's about as much as we got
0: okay
1: i it's kind of embarrassing but until i was like in high school i had no idea that christmas involved christ oh wow that was that was a revelation to me, and it sounds ridiculous because it, even right now, it sounds ridiculous to me, but it was true. It's absolutely
0: true. It was all Santa Claus and presents back then. Yes, okay. yeah, absolutely. So, and did you have, uh, what, what was your family makeup? Siblings?
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, one of five. Uh, there are four boys and one girl. I am the second oldest. Okay. The, the girl was second youngest. <laughs> okay.
0: So five, five kiddos in the family and, uh, and all right. So we're at your teenage years, you know, faith, church, religion, it's all just kind of a, you know, hooky mess there and, you know, not something that was really the focus of your attention. No. And obviously this changed at some point. So what, what prompted that, you know, change in perspective?
1: You know, it was, i think all teenagers kind of go through this sort of like i have to discover who i am and what it all means sort of thing and i was i tended to be kind of more on the thoughtful side of things and so it troubled me these questions about kind of why what's the point um
0: like what's the point of life yeah
1: yeah exactly that and uh, when you don't have a basis for anything and everything is an accident it um, and it's all happenstance, um, it, it can kind of mess with your head if you don't have something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So I um, I really started kind of spiraling down into this really sort of depressive cycle where I would think about how. Uh, well, if we, if this is all there is, meaning life, uh, then we're, there's no point, right? If it's all random, and, uh, and if it all ends um, after death, then there's really no point. Yeah. and And, uh, and that really caused me some, some upset. So I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about that but at the same time i didn't want to i didn't want to fool myself i was very kind of dismissive about everything uh religious at that point
0: well you know now i'm getting the sense of why you ended up going into political science and philosophy (laughs) about whether you know is there a point you know or not or
1: Right, <laughs> I've been struggling with a lot of those questions yeah. before. You know, before I even knew that was where you go to try and find answers. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some very poignant experiences that kind of put, move, got me off the dime, so to speak. Okay. So, um, and there probably isn't enough time to go through all of them, but um, but I think that's really what it requires you know, faith is something that is very personal. And, you know, in, in philosophy, we study epistemology, which is the, you know, the, the process of, of learning, right? So, mm-hmm. and how knowledge is absorbed. And epistemologically, you can learn through a variety of things, you know, pass on knowledge and then sensory and that sort of thing. But faith is kind of its own epistemological beast mm-hmm. it really i've only seen it take root in places where people busy themselves with it and then enough to have personal experiences with it and then those experiences grow in something else
0: well and, and that's a very interesting uh perspective and, and, and honestly you know when i when i think about philosophy i don't oftentimes uh, you know marry that with religion in fact you know, most of the time when I think about philosophy, I think of it as, you know, a way to talk yourself out of being religious. Um, and, and so, I mean, did you experience any of that kind of disconnect or did or 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 are those things, uh, you know, is there is there a lot of overlap or are they disconnected there? Sorry.
1: In, in terms of, of disconnect, I get I, I guess I didn't see it that way because I was already there okay. on that extreme. And so yeah, because there wasn't religion in, in my household and, and because religious ways of dealing with, with deep problems, particularly unknowns, you know, lots of people in faith communities, when there's something unknown uh, or, or something insurmountable that's in the way, you turn to other, you turn to divinity for that sort of guidance to figure out what it is that you're gonna do. I didn't have that. Okay. Uh at the start. Mm-hmm. And so I had never been taught that way. And so I never looked that way. I only ever had my parents and myself and my my buddies, my friends to to really kind of fall back on. Yeah. So I, I spent a lot of time in my own headspace trying to figure these things out. And uh and so I I didn't really ever think about, you know, like formal philosophy or that sort of so That came later. But um, but I spent a lot of time thinking about these sorts of questions the sort you know how how what's my place in all of it and and how am I learning about this and and uh how can I reconcile what's going on and i I came very quickly to the i'll say very quickly, but within a few years mm-hmm. i I kind of came to the 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 self imposed construct that I that life was pointless and there was really nothing there and uh, I remember struggling with that for a while and I had this one experience where I was just kind of out uh in in nature we we'd take vacations out in the forests and, okay. and things so mm-hmm. we were we were out at Sequoia National Forest uh, in that area. Yeah, we were out. Place,
0: beautiful place. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is teenage, teenage years. Where were you? High school? Yeah. I just barely started kind of high school. Okay. Age. Okay.
1: Um, maybe, maybe a little bit before, maybe like eighth grade. Okay. Around there. Uh, and I, uh, I was, I was in one of these really deep funks and, uh, it was really messing with me. And, uh, and then when I felt really down about it, I, I was kind of walking around in my own heads, doing in my own juices. And I um, I get this feeling that I need to look up. And I did. I looked up and I was at the precipice of this giant valley. Uh, these granite cliffs were on either side, uh, surrounded by these pristine forests, uh, just trees, And there was a little creek down in the bed. And just at that moment, as I'm looking up, the sun breaks down. So it's about sundown. Mm -hmm. So the sun breaks down and then it threw color everywhere. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that was, I think, one of the most religious experiences I ever had, being alone out there in the wilderness with that. And everything just time stopped. I'm looking at it. The air is kind of filling me. There's a breeze coming coming in. and um, and and I thought to myself, in that moment, this cannot be an accident. This was meant for something. This was created by something. And then, from one second to the next, it felt like fire was being poured into me. And I started tingling and it started down in my feet and it literally climbed up my body all the way to the top of my head. And I, and I broke down I started weeping and, and I said, I'm not alone. And that was the first time when I was willing to accept that, that, like that i wasn't it
0: Mm -hmm. right
1: that uh this wasn't all part of my dream my fever dream (laughs) it's not an accident it's not i mean that there's something bigger
0: out there Um, life is that there's a purpose behind it there's this was a purposeful creation
1: right Mm -hmm. and uh and then that warmth just kind of swelled and and then i just from that point i knew that i didn't have to worry about lying to myself okay i that i knew that there was something there i just needed to go find it
0: well now you're really speaking my language i'm I'm a very avid outdoorsman i love hiking i love being in nature and and what you described uh resonates very deeply with me I've, i've had that experience in in many, uh, opportunities being in the outdoors on hikes and backpacking trips. And, uh, it's amazing how just experiencing nature can be a conduit for the spirit to, to speak very deeply to your soul. Yeah. And yeah, it certainly did. So this, uh, you know, and, and yeah. uh, you know, maybe one of many, but this is, this is a cut was kind of a turning point, uh, in your kind of spiritual journey it was and
1: so from there i started accepting from that moment led directly to the decision that there was something there that i needed to find and so i went looking for it okay and i so i my parents my grandparents were uh my father's parents were uh they're Japanese and, and Japanese faith tradition is complicated. They were many things at once. Um w- which is common for many Japanese. So they're uh they were married in a Shinto ceremony, uh they were buried in Buddhist ceremonies, but they but their whole lives they were in like some kind of Protestant church.
0: So okay. <laughs> um so that's but I, quite the mixed uh background.
1: And that's not unusual. Okay. So um at least for, for Japanese it's not. Um, and they see no, no contradiction in any of that. Okay. Um,
0: and and on your mom's side, what was your, your mom's kind of historical kind of background there?
1: So my my mother's, uh, my mother was adopted. Okay. Uh, and, uh, her, she was adopted by a lady who went to, uh, the the denomination is called first Christian and, um, which really only means that it's protestant okay um and uh a congregant of a she she actually when um when she was quite young she was brought to california from illinois she was actually taken from her father her father didn't know that they were leaving
0: okay
1: and so uh my grandmother my birth grandmother uh absconded with her and then took her to california and they dropped her off uh after she realized she couldn't it was the 50s and you couldn't be a single mom in the 50s and have the kind of lifestyle she wanted so Mm -hmm. she dropped her off with a pastor who was running a foster home the pastor of a first christian church Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh one and that pastor Later, got called on a mission in their church. They uh, they only use paid clergy for missions, uh, and so he was sent on a mission by his by his um, his organization, and so he had to shut down his foster home, and he placed all of those children with congregants, and one of them was the grandmother that I always knew. Okay, and so they came together through the first first Christian
0: church but so you got the uh, Japanese ancestry with a kind of kaleidoscope of religious uh, affiliations on your dad's side that your mom would be adopted and in the first Christian church generally Protestant church you didn't have a whole lot of uh, faith growing up then you had this experience when you're in eighth grade ish ninth grade and it kind of made you want to seek out faith so um so so what what happened next you know had where did you, you say you went out searching for Or uh, more grounding in your faith, and and where did that lead you?
1: In all kinds of different directions. I I knew nothing about what religion really was. I mean, for I would except for the buzzwords like crusades and um, you know Salem witch trials and you know the the really sale of indulgences and everything that I had used to kind of combat sort of religious talk. Um, beforehand, it was a very inadequate yeah. and shallow understanding of what faith traditions were. So I started looking at different things um, and really trying to to talk with people about uh, about religion and what it was that they believed and why they believed it. And uh, and so and reading, I read a lot about things. Um, so I was reading about Buddhism and. Granted, this is very superficial, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and also before the internet, so difficult to find sources.
0: This this is as a high schooler. Yeah, that's super impressive. You know, most most high school kids, you know, religion is in many respects kind of the last thing on their agenda. So the fact that you were very introspective is uh, uh, on those things. I think is a is a feather in your cap.
1: I, it it's not as impressive as it sounds. <laughs> Uh I did spend a lot of time talking to different people about different things. I talked with friends who were congregants, Catholic friends, and then uh ended up uh attending uh youth groups uh for various uh churches and I would have questions we would have conversations um about things but I started to notice these uh these patterns uh where the, what was really kind of moving me what I found really kind of um, problematic uh, was this doctrine of salvation, the idea, of, at least in the Christian traditions, it came that way. The idea that heaven is only open to some people really bothered me. Mm-hmm. And I had this one thing that I would just say as kind of like my, my ultimate, you know, problem that i had developed in talking with people and it i guess in one sense it made me feel smart <laughs> to, to see these trained people kind of fumble around and trying to answer something in some sort of cogent way but the basically it went like this my uh my relatives on my father's side uh were buddhists and uh let's say that there is a, a a Buddhist out there, a Buddhist monk, and he's raised in the mountains of nowhere. And he spends his whole life being the best Buddhist monk he possibly could be. You know, just a really fine, upstanding person, making right choices all the time. He never even hears the word Jesus Christ, let alone learns about it. Mm -hmm. He dies. What happens to him? Mm -hmm. And you would be surprised at how different people like in, in other faith traditions how they respond to that question they're just they're it's very it's very vexing mm-hmm. under a lot of different doctrines from a lot of different creeds it's that is a very vexing question well
0: yeah. that was your that was your like secret weapon that was my you know, zinger you know, come come give me a good answer to that one and then i'll i'll, I'll listen to more yeah <laughs> well obviously as members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints we we have a better understanding of actually a decent answer to that question um and i suspect that at some point you came in contact there with uh and and your zinger actually got a response that probably resonated a little bit more with you it did i
1: uh through various instances i i met some missionaries and i and i started um talking with them about the gospel and um that's a story for another day and uh
0: but well, they they ultimately you got to a point where your zinger was, hey, yeah. we have an op there's an opportunity for this Buddhist monk who's never heard of Jesus Christ in order to to take advantage of the plan of salvation and to to make it to heaven, so to speak.
1: That that's a funny story. So I go in to one of these discussions and I, I've been kind of shut down at various angles through these things and I thought, you know, now it's time. It's time to bring out the zinger. The zinger. Okay. So I so I, I said, All right, guys. I waited for them to do their pre-canned whatever it was. The discussion. The discussion. Yes. They uh they're still memorizing discussions in those okay. days. So um so I, I waited for that to get over. And uh and then I said, All right, I got a question for you. And then I unload that. The zinger. The zinger. Okay. It's, there's these two farm boys from nowhere America. Mm-hmm. One of them was from rural Colorado, one of them was from rural Idaho. And uh and just they uh they looked at me and they got these big grins on their face, and I I knew something was up. Yeah. And they said, Well, it's funny that you should say or you should ask, because, and then they started explaining um. The the plan of salvation. And uh,
0: they got away from the script and started going, I'll preach my gospel on you.
1: That before there was a my gospel. <laughs> yes, they did. And uh when I heard the explanation, uh I was I was a I I literally said, You're making this up. Mm. I thought they were lying to me just to just a real me in. Mm-hmm. and they said no no here and i remembered one of them brought out a book that said exactly what it was that they were saying i think actually it was their discussions Okay, mm-hmm. and it was like just a later discussion
0: right, right. so well, they were jumping ahead in the in the program
1: so. yeah so i i was not following the script mm-hmm. so so they they pointed at it they're like no no see here
0: look see mm-hmm.
1: and i looked at it and i said th- i said this is impossible how the the solution was elegant it spoke to the logic in my mind uh and it really kind of calmed all of that turbulent thought and i i thought to myself man this is this is a lot to take in (laughs) Yeah. yeah eventually i um obviously i ended up joining the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And uh in in large part because it uh it was answering those deep questions that I had been thinking about.
0: Well when I did And, and what time frame were we talking? When when did you when, when were you baptized?
1: I was baptized in nineteen ninety six. Which would have been where for you junior year. Junior
0: year of high school.
1: Junior year of high school. Okay. So my after so in my junior year of high school, I um I joined the church and um everybody thought I had joined the church for other reasons. Um, I, I was dating an LDS girl at the time, and so they they thought that you this, were just
0: joining for the girl.
1: Yes, yeah. Okay. So and and I you know I I don't hold that against them. Um, I I played tennis and I had this one experience where uh so before I joined the church and I when I was playing tennis I I had this I, I was terrible at tennis. I'm still terrible at tennis.
0: during <laughs> the club. Really? <laughs> yeah.
1: I i had this shtick where I would pull like a John McEnroe and it was funny because it happened so often, right? You miss your shot and you launch into something, whatever. But I was um it was kind of uh really bad at um you know popping off and then uh and then the stream of profanity kind of issued forth and mm-hmm. in unending the game with my partner was to see how long you could go um and uh it, one time i was in uh, after i joined the church i uh i missed a shot launched into my Mac and row shtick and uh my my devil's partner was giving me this big goofy grin and i looked at him and i said what and he's and he looked at me i'll never forget this he said nothing's changed
0: Hmm.
1: and i was just i thought to myself it was he could have taken cold water and he had dumped it on my head Hmm. and it was a wake-up call
0: i needed to change i should be different this was post-baptism and it was kind of a dig on you like hey you got baptized but clearly you you've you've kept all of the same habits you had before yes yeah.
1: and so that got me thinking what else should i what else should change and i thought to myself you know i need to be a different person i've i've committed myself to be a different person i need to be a different person
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh and that's when the That brings us back to where we started, which is this infantile goal of just being rich so I don't have to work.
0: Uh, Right. Uh
1: I thought that's not an appropriate goal for the person that I want to be. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I need to do something. I need to make a difference. I need to be able to support a family doing it. But I need, I need to. There needs to be purpose behind what it is that I do. Right. So um, rewind a little bit and um uh, it's now like around my freshman year of high school and uh or maybe a little bit before maybe eighth grade again so around that turbulent time yeah i'm rooting through my my family's junk drawer and i find a folded up piece of letter paper in there. and i pull it out and it has the seal of the president of the united states on it and it's signed by at that time, George H.W. Bush. And I start reading it because that was unusual to me. And it said, uh, Dear Mr. Furuya, and it launches into this, this explanation of the remorse of a nation and righting wrongs. And, and that was the gist of it. That's what I remember. It was my father's reparations letter. So my father, he's a born citizen, but he was born in uh, Tula Lake, which is a Japanese internment camp.
0: He was actually born in the internment camp. Yeah, that's a picture. Oh, wow. On the wall. Wow.
1: Yes, he was born in the internment camp. His parents, that's my grandmother and my grandfather in the middle in that picture right there. Okay. um, They were born citizens, too. They were born in the Los Angeles area. Uh, one of them in the early 1920s, the other in like 1918. Mm-hmm. Uh, born citizens, yeah. they were raised in Japan, but and they came back uh, in the 30s when they were adults, started a business, and then Pearl Harbor happened, and um, then the internment order happened, and they were all taken to the internment camps.
0: So back. Back to eighth grade, you're finding this reparations letter in the uh, you know family files. Reading through it,
1: I didn't know anything about that. Mm. By about middle school or so, they had not gotten to that to cover that in history class. Uh, so I asked my father, "What is this?" And he didn't want to talk about it. Fast forward a little bit, and then I get into high school, and then. All of a sudden, the the curriculum starts talking about the internment, and those types of things, and mm-hmm. I thought, "Oh, that's what that was about." Mm-hmm. And by that time, I had had government classes, and I had all these other things, um, and the steady diet of you know patriotism and the uh, you know pledge of allegiance sure or that they give you in in schooling, it was not there was dissonance. I can imagine between that and it's just like Mm -hmm. liberty and justice for everyone except the Japanese during World War II Mm -hmm. Um,
0: it's interesting how these two both your kind of faith journey as well as your kind of eye-opening about kind of the U.S. history and how that impacted your, your family all kind of coalesced during this same kind of time frame in your life
1: yeah and you know they, the Japanese, they, they wanted to. They, at least my family, were very intent on assimilation, on being accepted,
0: being American. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Being American, mm-hmm. American before
0: everything.
1: Mm-hmm. I after when I went to law school, and we learned about the Korematsu case. My my professor, Professor Gettix, he uh. Yeah. He had, a, he had a whole lecture on, on USB Korematsu, which at that point, that was pre-Trump versus White. Mm-hmm. So it had not been renounced. It was still very much on the book. Uh, we, we discussed the case. And then afterward, I went up and I said, I, you know, I wanted to thank you for that, that discussion because uh, it impacts me very personally. My father was born in an internment camp. He grabs me by the shoulders and he says, are your grandparents still alive? And I said, well, my grandmother is. And he says, you have to interview her. And I said, okay. (laughs) So I did. And that was very difficult. It was prying anything out of her about that was, was extremely difficult, but I actually got to interview her about her time in the camps and how she felt and what happened and those types of things. Um, Took a lot of of doing, uh, but I was able to do that. And then I and then I interviewed my father. And one of the things that he said during his interview, I said, "It's 1950s. He's born in 1945. Uh, it's 1950s. You're growing up in Southern California." And I said, "How did how did you work that?" And he said, "We I survived by being more American than the Americans." And I said, "What does that mean?" Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if everyone is expected to graduate, you have to be on the honor roll. Mm -hmm. If everyone plays baseball, you are going to letter. If everyone is in Boy Scouts, you're going to be Eagle, and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And this was common. Um, And and, uh, so Vietnam comes along, and my father enlists. He isn't drafted. He enlists, and then his his enlistment expires, and he
0: re-ups. He does a second tour. Wow, in country. Um, before I forget, so the Koromatsu case for not everyone who's not you know familiar with the history of that. So that was a decision that that undertook the issue about the the uh, the validity of the internment camp decisions.
1: Right. It, well, it, technically, the case was about when an emergency happens. What sort of powers does the the president have under the emergencies clause to to do types of things like remove people's civil liberties?
0: And so the upshot of that decision at the time was that creating this internment camp, taking people out and putting them in was was justifiable under the Constitution uh, based upon the emergency
1: that created alleged, yeah that allegedly yeah. the Japanese Americans presented yeah. during World War II yes
0: obviously something that we look back on to say that was a terrible decision and ultimately was
1: um, it was officially repudiated in right. Trump versus Hawaii by right. Chief Justice Roberts right. who right. who said no the that that case is terrible and right. has been repudiated it has been overturned by history I think right. is what he said
0: right right. Um, so, so sorry. I wanted to get that on on our on our record here, but you were you were finishing up the thought about your father as uh, as you were interviewing him. So they, this is
1: just one of those those things where it was it was it was very normal to not talk about. It. And I'm not alone. Uh, I've I've met Karen Korematsu, the daughter of Fred Korematsu. Oh wow! Uh, and and she had much the same experience I did. Mm-hmm. She she didn't know. When in her case, she got less notice than I did, they started talking about it in school. And uh, she, she thought to herself, oh, that guy's name is like my name.
0: Uh, oh, my goodness. Wow.
1: She didn't know that they were talking about her father. So this is very common. And then I found that letter, and then I kind of keyed off to it that I was, that my family was connected to this event in some way. Mm-hmm. And then I found more information, or I was given more information towards the end of high school. Okay. Around the time when I had been looking to change
0: on the faith continuum, there.
1: Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So those two paths kind of intersected yeah. at that point when I thought, gosh, there's, there's got to be something wrong with uh, how that happens. And, and, and what is it that, how did, how did that happen? Yeah. And then I was reading about the Supreme court and about the case um, about the Korematsu case. And I learned that, you know, there are these things that are called appellate courts and the way that I formulated it kind of in my teenage mind and it never left me is uh, so like, the The judge that you see in a trial court it, it hears cases that people bring to them. One side presents their evidence, the other side presents their evidence, and the judge decides between those and then uh, so he's deciding the case. He's judging people, right the wrong problems of people right. Uh, then I was reading about these appellate courts and, and I was like, oh, where the trial court judges people, it's the appellate court's job to look and make sure that everyone's following the rules that was a mm-hmm. a quote actually by oliver wendell holmes uh, and someone stopped him and, and uh, or he had met someone on the street and they were talking and that when they parted he, his friend said go do justice and he stopped and he said that's not my job mm. my job is to make sure everyone follows the rules mm
0: said Oliver Wendell Holmes. Yeah.
1: But um
0: I so became so enamored with this idea of appellate courts have this 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 check and the check and balances of being able to make sure that people follow the rules, including, you know, in, in the trial courts.
1: Yeah. And um the way that I formulated it is that the, the appellate courts, it's their position to judge the government, to judge the system itself. Mm. So where trial courts judge people, appellate courts judge the system. And like right off the bat, I knew that was what I wanted to do. That's what
0: I wanted to do. And this again was during your high school years. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we get, so just for sake of time, I don't want to take up your whole afternoon, but so you, you graduate from high school, you decide to, you know, at that time you're, you're, you're now a member of the church. You've you've got a a, a foundation of faith, and you've got a a, a career objective. <laughs> uh, I, I look, like to be or want to be a, a an appellate court judge. So you you decide to go to BYU Law School. You study political science and philosophy. And and again, so was that at that point? Obviously, it sounded like you had the objective of going to law school. Uh, I, did. Okay. I did that right. Okay,
1: and that was intentional. So the. The philosophy thing and the political science that was all just kind of means to an end mm-hmm. i I've always been I might have noticed I've always been interested in thought and um, and how we can reason things together and pull things apart. yeah so but yeah that was that was very. Interesting. Intentional.
0: So you go to BYU, uh, you get your undergraduate degree. Was there any space between law, or did you go straight into law school after you graduated with your undergrad?
1: No, I. Um, well, so I there's a mission in there. Okay, and served a mission. Where did you serve? In, in East Germany. Oh, okay. Yeah, I my mission was called Leipzig. Uh, it's now part of Berlin. It Doesn't exist anymore. But I was there from 1998 to 2000, which was the 10 year anniversary of the fall of the Berlin
0: Wall. That's when I was in law school, was 97 to 2000. And I served my mission in 89 to 91. I was in the MTC when the Berlin Wall fell. Wow! And I served my mission in what was then Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. So, right. uh, so we have all these connections here. Just right there. there. Yes, <laughs> okay. So 10 years later, you're over there in Germany. Celebrating the uh, the the decade of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and so you're there in in uh, in the Leipzig Mission. Yeah. At the time. Okay. Yeah.
1: And so I I finished that up and then went and finished uh, undergrad. I was I was married during my undergrad years, um, and then I graduated and uh, and then I worked as a paralegal. Oh, okay. So uh, for about a year and a half, maybe a year and nine months, uh, I worked as a paralegal in a law firm called Yossi Christiansen in Brooklyn. Okay. And uh, it was a really that was my first foray into actual practical law, and um, and it was it was very interesting. It was also the first kind of like real professional job I had to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was it was humbling. Got a lot of stories out of that. I'll tell you, tell you them some other time.
0: <laughs> civil or, or criminal practice? It was a civil practice. Okay. Yeah. Uh
1: huh. Um, they did collections law, and yep. mechanics liens, and those types of things. Okay. So I had a lot of experience with those. Uh, then took the LSAT while I was working there. Um, I did that work primarily so I could study for the LSAT. Okay. And uh, and then uh, took the LSAT and then managed to to get into BYU.
0: Yeah, which we all know is the greatest law school out there. <laughs> um, but um, no bias here in this interview. but um, so you go to you go to BYU law school, um, you're there, you graduate 2007, is that right? That is correct. Okay. So 2004, 2007, you're there, clerk during law school. You do some externships over the summers. I did some summer work. Um, yeah. I I worked for uh, the U.S. Attorney's
1: Office under Paul Warner, um, and uh, I thought that was the greatest thing ever. I it was really thrilling. I went up after my first year. It was my externship. Uh, and I, I'm in that program. It was a fantastic program. They had a great contact there, uh, who got you involved with a lot of different aspects of the office. It was really, really well run. Um, and I, uh, I get taken in on my first day. Uh, the, the coordinator takes me in, introduces me to the chief of the interdiction unit. And, um, Maybe he wasn't chief, but anyway, he was in the interdiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I come in, and it's just prototypical. It, there are these this mountain range of files all over his desk, mm-hmm. and uh, was before E finally was yeah set, right. So. And uh, and he had to move stuff aside so I could see him. <laughs> we we chit chatted for a little bit, and then he uh, and then I said, "Well, how can I help you?" And he says, "All right." So he disappears behind the mountains, and he pulls out this giant stack of paper, and he hands it to me, and he says, "This guy um, got caught with some obscene amount. It's like over a hundred pounds of cocaine or something like
0: that." Mm-hmm.
1: And he said, "The cops messed up the search on the Miranda rights. Uh, they're moving to suppress the evidence. Uh, if they do, this guy will walk." And he looks. He hands it to me. And he says, "Stop him."
0: <laughs> that was all the direction I got. This was after your first year of law school. Is after my first okay. year. Yeah. of Okay. Yeah. So school. you're you're you know a, basically a pro in all things legal related at that point, right? <laughs> and I I have no idea what happened either. It was, uh, but I did my
1: best. I did my level best. But I thought that was that was great, thrilling work, yeah. and.
0: Uh, I, I had an
1: exit interview with the U.S. attorney, who at the time was Paul Warren, mm-hmm. and uh, and he says, well, what is it that you want to do? And I said, I want to do what you do. <laughs> he laughed and he said, well, we don't take people straight out of law school. You'll have to go um, get some experience, get some experience mm-hmm. and come back. Mm-hmm. And so go to a county attorney's office, go to a district attorney's office at the state level, and then come see us yeah so I wanted to be a prosecutor from that point on I wanted to be a prosecutor wow and uh BYU has a pretty good relationship or did right? with, the, with the Riverside County Attorney's Office okay and uh in California in California mm-hmm. and my mother at the time was living in Riverside County so I thought hey there's a connection
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I I dropped through a job there. Mm-hmm. Uh, job BYU's job fairs are great, by the way. I also did the job fair for this, and I uh, and so I uh, dropped for the for the county for the district attorney's office in Riverside mm-hmm. County, mm-hmm. and uh, it, I had I don't know three interviews with them with the district attorney's office. So I thought, oh yeah, three interviews, I'm I got this. Uh-huh. And so I, I thought, hey, here we go. This is this is how I'm going to make my bones.
0: I'm going to become a you know prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office. This is going to be my path to get there. My end. Mm-hmm. And uh,
1: <clears throat> it, uh, this is it's interesting because I got a call from Pernell McGuire, and he said, "Hey, I'm really impressed with your interview. Uh, why don't you come work with us in Flagstaff?" Uh, I had also applied to Aspie Watkins.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was like, well, "That's that's great and all, but I want to be a prosecutor." <laughs> so, uh, so I said, "Hey, can I get some time to think about it?" And he said, "Sure, uh, don't let moss grow though." <laughs> and so I had to get a pretty quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, uh, I, I called the district attorney's office and I said, "Hey, you know, I got this other." gig what's the deal and they yeah. said oh don't worry the the answers are in the mail and i said okay so um uh friday comes around and uh and i i get it sure enough i get a letter and i open the letter and the letter says thanks but no thanks wow. and so i said well that makes my job really
0: easy that does make the decision process easier for...
1: so i go in immediately and i uh, i write an email out to pernell and i say i'm happy to jump on board and uh, looking forward to coming down mm-hmm. and um and that was that the following day saturday i'm uh, out raking leaves and uh i get a call and i go in to take this call and it is the chief deputy of the district attorney's office
0: oh boy i can see
1: where this is going and he says congratulations we're really excited to have you on board we're really want we're looking forward to you coming down and being part of the team and i said whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. this is not matching up i said you told me no and he says yeah funny thing about that uh the there was some mix up and one of the staff took all of the all of the yes letters for the for the second years and put them in the no pile for
0: oh the permanent God. positions. Oh my gosh!
1: So they they sent nos out to all the second years,
0: yeah.
1: and, um, and I was like, I've already given my word to this firm, and mm-hmm. I can't go back on that. And they said, you know, totally, we respect you for that. Mm-hmm. Come see, keep us in mind after you graduate. Said, all right. And so that's how I wound up in Flagstaff.
0: Wow! All right. Well, I know I've already gone over my time, but I do want to. I would want to get to a couple of uh, of items if you have if you have a few more minutes. I, yeah, certainly. So, uh, so you you're in private practice. You end up at the county attorney's office. So you were in private practice. How many years? I was in private practice for eight and a half years. Eight and a half years, and then you you finally become a prosecutor.
1: I was not a prosecutor. Or I was in, I was in the civil division.
0: Oh, civil division. Okay. Yeah. So you did civil work. Okay. I did. And, and and they was... did give me a badge though. So I... okay. Well, you know, I mean, you got a badge. That's that's really the most important thing. <laughs> uh, uh... I'm
1: sorry to all the prosecutors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you you uh you left private practice and and uh you know, was that an intentional, you know, desire just to expand your experience or or uh at that point were you still on the path that hey, I want to become an appellate court judge?
1: You know, um So
0: I, I
1: thought that that's a long story. I what I will say is that I I did want to be an appellate court judge. I thought that that dream was kind of beyond me.
0: Um,
1: I uh, I they tell people a lot, you know, to to be in the court or whatever. You got to be order of the coif to. You, there's this pathway this trajectory that you got to do you gotta you gotta um, you know be order the coif. you gotta uh, clerk for you know you know a high clerkship preferably you know circuit court and, um, and then you got to be a rock star at either a big law firm or you got to be a rock star prosecutor um, and I and I don't know that I felt like my uh, my grades were really kind of there mm-hmm. for that pedigree. Um, I uh, when I was in law school, I, it was it was humbling. I there's a lot you know. Sometimes I have benefited from a curve. Sometimes I think I have not benefited from a curve. <laughs> I I am very grateful for BYU because it it made you work hard because my class, they are just phenomenal. There's a lot of really excellent, excellent attorneys. Tim Overton uh, is from my class. Jared Sign is from my class. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yasser Sanchez, he's from my class. The list goes on and on and on and on. There's all these, these really just incredibly gifted, in uh, incredibly dedicated attorneys that came out of that class, mm-hmm. and um, and I made the mistake in my first year of trying to compete with them instead of compete with myself, mm. and I think that took my eye off and made me do things like study habits and those things that I changed up that didn't fit me, mm. and uh, and so I. I didn't perform as well as I thought I should have Mm -hmm. and uh,
0: all, all on me,
1: you know, all on me. Uh, Well,
0: this is a great, this is a great point and and important, obviously for anybody who's listening, who's, you know, coming up through the ranks and recognizing that, that there, uh, there, there's a lot of paths to your goal. Right. uh, I mean, obviously we're sitting here in your chambers, you're a court of appeals, you're an appellate judge. So we know you got, got from point A to point B, And uh, and there are you know non traditional paths or you know what maybe is not not consistent with uh, uh, with the logic that's fed to you uh, in the in a law school environment that that will allow you to get to to where you want to be. That's certainly true. Yeah.
1: And you know don't despair. Uh, If you didn't get the grade that you wanted, don't despair. There are lots of roads to Rome, and uh, a lot of it has to do with. Uh, with hard work and um, a lot of it has to do with uh, knowing the profession that you're in and being dedicated
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and a lot of it has to do with I think providence yeah, yeah. <laughs> have, have faith have faith in yourself have mm-hmm. faith in the Lord and uh, and accept what comes because your life will take lots of unexpected turns, and um, and if you're listening, and if you're dedicated, uh, then I really do believe that God can make up that difference. Uh, and that's not to say that you know everything is going to be exactly as you want it. Sure, but um, but I think I, if you find a purpose and and if you if you're in harmony in step, I think that we can expect some assistance yeah. and i think that's really what happened
0: well and that that's uh, very insightful and and, and very encouraging because all of us have detours in our lives at some point or another you know i i wanted to ask you about one of the things that you added that obviously has been important to you throughout your career was public service yes and uh and and uh, do, you, do you ascribe any of kind of your pathway to the court of appeals here to the public service that you engaged in. Absolutely. So, and just for our listeners, so you can, I'm just looking here. So you you were heavily involved in the Coconino County Bar Association, President of the Board of Directors there, uh, also on the State of Arizona uh, uh, Board of Governors uh, for the uh, Arizona State Bar, as well as the State Bar President. You served a term there as well, right? And then uh, I I think you're currently still on the board of directors for the Arizona Foundation for Legal Services and Education, or is that? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And that's part of why some of your trips down here to the Phoenix uh, area involve that as well, right? They
1: they do, and they have. (laughs)
0: So obviously that has been a critical component uh, or something that was obviously very important to you is to, to give back and be a part of uh, a public service aspect of your, of your legal career.
1: That is absolutely true. You know, one of the things that I, I, when I was starting out in my career, it was just kind of like make make your billable goals and, you know, put your nose to the grindstone, churn it out as, as hard as possible. And I have to give it, I take my hat off to my firm, uh, my fr- Aspie Watkins and Diesel, my first firm, uh, they knew that, you know, particularly in in a community, uh, you have to be more than just the all about the business. You have to you have to be part of the community that you serve. Mm-hmm. And so they encouraged uh, participation uh, in a variety of things. I did. I I joined the Flagstaff Leadership Program. Um, I was very active in the church uh i did a chamber of commerce stuff you and and really kind of got out and then um uh, whitney cunningham who's the current managing partner of aspie watkins and diesel he he was serving as state bar president when he came on to be managing partner of awd and uh and one day he came into my office and uh, he said i'm resigning and uh and you're gonna run for my seat because <laughs> I'm done with my term uh-huh. and so I was voluntold to do that. <laughs> I uh I ran I, I think I won by ridiculously low margin because the I was running against a very very competitive um candidate uh a very capable lawyer named is Serena Seracio uh and I, so I just barely eked out this, mm-hmm. this, this win. Uh, and uh, I, th- that got me a seat on the board of governors. And uh, I saw very quickly that there was purpose and responsibility in being uh, a, a representative of the sort of the more rural areas of the state. Okay, And I felt very strongly about that. I've been, Licensed on the Navajo Nation since 2008 um, to practice law, and I've been out there um, uh, over the years frequently to all kinds of different places: Chinle and Dilcon and Nato and Cayenta, Window Rock, obviously mm-hmm. tuba City, just taking cases and and. Um, and getting out there among the people and, and getting to know that culture and, and seeing that it really could benefit from attention and from partnership,
0: yeah.
1: you know, not condescension, but, um, but from partnership. And that voice was missing from, from our board at the time. Uh, there's a member of the board there now, her name is Doreen Um She's the uh, attorney general for Navajo Nation for a little bit longer but um, she's there now, but there wasn't anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so I felt the need to, to start um, being that voice, being that person. And it was my, my willingness to get to know people and to, uh, and to work hard at, uh, at serving people and serving in communities that, that opened up those opportunities. Yeah. But that was how I got to know a variety of people. I, I've traveled all over the state, uh, talking to all lawyers in all different towns and in all different circumstances and all different practices. And, um, and I wrote about it. Uh, I, I'm truly impressed by the bar in, in Arizona. I think we don't give ourselves enough credit uh, for who we are and what we do in terms of representing not only our clients, but also in helping our communities stay together and to improve. Yeah. Uh, so many different things that people are doing and so much good work going on. But that going in and making those connections, and this is the thing that they don't ever tell you in law school, is that who you know and how you know them and how they perceive you is really important you yeah. and uh so networking in the one sense but then just kind of getting out of yourself and giving of yourself and uh really kind of looking after your neighbor it's unheard of for a lot of people and they're and it's noteworthy
0: yeah
1: in the church we talk about it all the time but uh, sometimes we're a little too insular in how we do it, right? right. We, we serve—we're really good at serving each other. We're less good at serving others yeah. outside of our communities. But, yeah. if, but if we do that, if we get outside of our ourselves, outside of our communities, there's a real need, and it's—and it's really appreciated. Yeah. And um, that sort of service, it goes a long way, and that is largely responsible for how I how I got here. Yeah. So you,
0: so in addition to obviously having a legal career where you, you know practiced law, you worked hard, put in your time and effort there and, but your service gave you opened up doors and and created opportunities that may not have otherwise existed.
1: They, I know for a fact that they did and that that is an indisputable truth.
0: Which is great. I mean, and obviously we're speaking here in the context of the the J. Rueville Clark Law Society mission, which is, this fundamentally focused on this idea that our practice in the legal community should also be married with our faith, and that those two things uh, should work together. Um, and the fact that uh, an important part of your legal career has been doing things that are not directly, you know, practice of law, but service oriented. How can I be a benefit to the, uh, you know, outlying communities that aren't here in Phoenix metro area? Uh, how can I represent and be a voice for those folks? And, uh, uh, how can I be a voice for folks like your dad and your grandparents who are in these internment camps and and make a difference, uh, give open door and, and open doors and give you an opportunity to, to serve, uh, where you're at. So, so, uh, eventually, so how, how did we end up then submitting your application for the court of appeals and, and, uh, and uh, and ultimately getting to where you're at now in your dream job <laughs> well one of the things was
1: um, that the the wheels had started turning because uh, there was an opening that happened it's a long time judge uh, from Flagstaff judge John Thompson
0: passed away quite suddenly and uh, there was a big by the way judge Thompson's chambers was right next to <laughs> my judge's chambers when I clerked so. I remember guitars being delivered, you know, to the Court of Appeals. And That's right. He was known for his long hair and ponytail. Yes, and an excellent guitars. Yes. Yeah, so Judge Thompson passed away. Okay. And they and they were doing a, a search for it. And
1: for quite some time, while I had been coming through the officers' chairs at the state bar, I would I would take every opportunity that I could to support initiatives that in that increase sort of like that had focus on access to justice so mm-hmm. I was very involved with the affinity bars um, that would be you know with like the Arizona black bar the mm-hmm. Arizona Asian American Bar Association mm-hmm. minority Bar Association etc so um, I and I still try to be involved uh, but I I would see at I would go to these events and I and I would see their uh, the governor's council, Annie Foster. Okay, and we had a joke going. We were following each other around. <laughs> Are you following me? <laughs> I just, you know, my bar work took me to a lot of these places. She mentioned during Judge John, Judge Thompson's search for the for his replacement after he had passed away, that the governor wanted a lot of uh, choices to to be able to. Um, to have the, the broadest range possible to be able to make an appointment. And so she was asking me for uh, suggestions and to tell people to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I did. I, I encouraged a lot of different people to apply. I was uh, not quite halfway through my presidency at that point. And, and I thought, gosh, well, how awesome would that be? Um, but I was telling all these other people to apply. I toyed with the idea myself at that point, but I thought, you know, it's, I don't know. And so, um, so I did, um, and, and I thought, you know, maybe I can try. maybe I can make my way onto superior court and then I can work my way out and, uh, but i was fine at the time i was working for the county attorney's office which is a fantastic employer and um and flagstaff was a fantastic place to live so i really had nothing to complain about and um but i not just i think it was like two years later or less than two years later i get a call from uh judge dave goss who's currently our vice chief judge Mm -hmm. um and we had met each other at one of these affinity bar events he's quite active in the in the asian american bar association and uh we met we met at uh, a few of those uh events and uh we talked and got to know each other and um and then there was a retirement that happened um and judge ken jones stepped down and uh So he he texts me and he says, "How would you like to be an appellate
0: court (laughs) judge?" And I thought, "What me?" I said, "Heck yeah!" Only since eighth grade, I've been dreaming of this job. Uh Right? He didn't know that at Uh the time,
1: Um, but he he was instrumental in it. He uh, he really helped me. He he uh, told me about the application, the application process, and that application is no joke. It's, it's a very involved application. So another thing, another piece of advice I would give new lawyers is keep your resume current. Hmm. Figure out what meaningful cases that you have. You're like, oh, this one's really interesting or this one taught me a lesson, you know, something like that. Write it down. Here's the case for journaling.
0: <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh-
1: <laughs> right write that stuff down because if you forget about it you can't use it later and then your application asks you for it and you're like i, I knew i did something i can't remember what i did <laughs> so I, he helped me walk through that process and i uh, it's very exacting mm-hmm. um he uh he helped me uh prepare for the the interview with the commission, and uh the Arizona Commission on Appellate Court Appointments is a public body. There's 10 non-lawyers and five lawyers. And it's chaired by the Chief Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court. And it is grueling. Yeah. Uh, it's very intimidating. Uh, and uh, they have difficult questions. And and you can't walk into that stuff cold. you got to prepare. And so having somebody to be there for you and be a resource for you and help you, you know, figure out what you're going to say you know, or how to formulate, what you're yeah. put your thoughts in order and communicate them is one thing. The other thing is to tell you that you're good enough because there's a lot of things that go through your head when you're there. There were a lot of really excellent, excellent candidates. And I know that they would make great appellate court judges, mm. uh, but being in the room was my job to say, "Hey, I'm here too." Right, right. And that was what allowed me to take my shot, take my swing. Yeah, I uh, was being able to recognize, yeah, they're they're great, but I have something
0: I can offer too. Well, it's great to have, you know, you're certainly making the case for mentors and and people to, you know, extend a hand. Even when you're talking about Pernell McGuire, you talk about Judge Goss. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and that those were situations that you helped create, you know, it wasn't just like somebody, you know, came in out of the blue and, you know, extended this hand to be my savior and help me to get to, you know, this position, but you, you, uh, through your public service and through your outreach and efforts, you created those situations by participating in the, in the Asian bar and making that connection, networking, Um, and so those, those were, certainly helpful uh uh uh, avenues to get get to your appointment Oh, absolutely
1: i i for all of my clerks i give them that advice hey look outside of yourself your job is your job you have to pay the bills you have to eat bread right and so by the sweat of your brow uh but you have to also do something that fills you right and sometimes those things align and it's great when they do but they don't always and certainly not all the time right so instead what you got to do is when they're not aligning you have to find those things that will fill you and the gospel teaches us that we we should look outside of ourselves for that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that we we experience less joy and we accomplish less good by turning the eye inward than we do by turning the eye outward. And when we do, that creates good in the world. That puts good out into the world, and it, ge- it clears
0: that space. Righteousness clears the space for blessings to occur. I like that. thought. And, uh, and we, can, we can always use uh, a, a lot more um, good in the world. A lot more good in the world. Just a little bit at a time. So, uh, so kind of wrapping up here. You've you've now you're just finishing up basically two years on the court of appeals. Yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, you know, and obviously, uh, so I guess has it been the dream job that you imagined ever since you were in eighth grade? It has been.
1: It's it's surprising. I, you know, this this job is in is incredibly difficult. Um, it's every bit as hard as I thought it would be and harder, uh, but it's also very rewarding. Um, I get to go up, wake up every day, come into work and think through these, these really deep problems and I get resources to do it. And they pain, ah, <laughs> I, I just, I can't believe my fortune and I, um, and I have I have been so blessed. And um it, but it is difficult. It's difficult, difficult work. Yeah. And uh but it's meaningful and that and that really helps.
0: Yeah. Well I can imagine, you know, we, you based on the experience that you've shared even just in our conversation, you recognize the gravity and the importance of your job. And uh and and uh to ensure that, you know, justice is not miscarried uh, and to correct it when it has been. Um, And and those are very weighty decisions. Those are difficult decisions to make. Um, I guess, you know, maybe last general question, obviously, given the fact that uh, our mission as a a, a society is to recognize the impact of our faith in the law. How how does your faith uh, integrate into what you do as a judge? So, um,
1: obviously, we're neutral, right?
0: So, sure, but of course. Uh,
1: but you know, we're not called upon to not be ourselves, right? So, I I am a person of faith, and I, you know, one of the things that I um, that I do is I seek guidance every day, multiple times a day. You, you tend to do that more when you know you're in over your head. Wow. Um, and that's, that's okay. You know, and because I know that, that God is mightier than any problem. And uh, if we just try and bring about what he's after, probably going to wind up on top. Um now what that means in any given case that's a matter for you know reflection and and research and in the law and that's what i do but as a general guiding principle you know i'm not afraid to go to my knees and and ask hey how should this happen Mm -hmm. you know what's what's going on here and then letting life and inspiration kind of fill you and uh in, in particularly vexing cases, I I do that quite a lot. And you know, especially when there's a lot on the line, people trust that our justice system with their, you know, everything that is most important to them. Their time, their treasure, their freedom, their families. It, that's all implicated and it's, and that is what we do. We help people with the most important aspects of their lives from, you know, navigating difficult divorces to uh, planning for the succession in the future to providing for their families and, and building up their business. And of course, you know, the the thorny issues of of retribution and, and punishment when society breaks down you, how can you not and I could not face that without knowing that I have access to something more to help me bear that and, and that's how I do I keep a quote on my desk it's from Proverbs it's the one that says trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. You know, thinking is what I do for a living. It's what you do for a living. You know, but how you go about that and how you maintain the inner strength to keep doing it, I think, that's the the wellspring of power that
0: kind of fills. Me. That's that's uh, very profound, and uh, I appreciate that insight. Uh, I very much appreciate the time you set aside today amongst all of your public service. Uh, the, certainly, service that you rendered to the society and to our chapter here in particular is very much appreciated. Uh, I, I feel like I'm a better person for having spent the last hour and a half with you. You're uh, fine. <laughs> so thank you. And and uh, appreciate all that you're doing for the hard work you got. And so glad that you're finally in your dream job. Thank you.